Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. We're the creator of The Dance, the-dance.org. Check it out. And Forgiving Path, forgivingpath.com. Uh, two gospel intensives take two, two and a half hours each and expensive, and they can really make you feel better about your relationship with God, uh, make you experience more of the love of God and more of the justice of God so that you can forgive, uh, feel like God loves you more. They're very powerful. It seems strange that two and a half hours online can cause anything to happen in your life, but we can show it. So check them out. But I want to get back to the podcast, the Gospel Rant podcast. We're going through a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. This is the fourth podcast in that series. We're still in Matthew 3, looking at the baptism of Jesus. Uh, this is part three of the baptism of Jesus. And we're doing this as an intro into the Sermon on the Mount. If we don't know who Jesus is, if we haven't seen the character, the passion of Jesus, uh, the, uh, the the actual way D Jesus deals with issues like baptism, like the temptation coming up, like the calling of the disciples, then we've missed some of the character development that Matthew seems to want us to understand about Jesus as we begin to listen to him on the hillside. Does that make sense? Uh, the, so investing in these early chapters of Matthew will pay off big time, and you'll begin to see even today, I'll do a summary in just a moment. But let me summarize where we are. Matthew is showing us the person and character of Jesus, and there's no one like him, right? And the more we know about him and see him interacting with people, the better we can get a feel for what was happening on the hillside in Galilee, the Sermon on the Mount. So how the listeners heard things and saw things and felt about Jesus, we want to get closer and closer to that. So typically we focus on Jesus as the teacher, the one who's passing on kingdom principles for us to live by, and implicitly, if we do them, then God would move towards us favorably. He might even like us more. We might even feel more liked by God. But Matthew's Jesus, he's that, but he's far much more. He's far more com complex and wonderful. So what? I mean, what difference does it make? Well, in today's modern sensitivities, particularly the anxiety and shame and isolation, not enoughness and disconnectedness, people just might tend to draw away from principal teachers. You know, here are the five things you need to do to get your act together. You know, this generation looks at that askew and, and yeah, and might even avoid it, right? Because failing again is painful, and I'm becoming more and more sensitive to that. And if I just thought that Jesus was going to give me another list of what to do, then you know, and I failed doing those in the past. I've tried, and I'm likely going to fail again. Why would I even come to the mountain? Why would I even lean in and listen? I probably wouldn't. Even if I am forced to be on the hillside, I'm probably not going to listen and, and apply. It hurts too much. I may not even come to the mountain or to church, right? I'd rather just gut it out on my own and uh, play the victim card. But Jesus is so different and here are five things that we're coming up with that we're seeing. They make a difference. Jesus is like none others. All right. So what can we say about Jesus now that we've been unpacking uh, is five things. First of all, he is a teacher of life principles, the greatest ever. Second, he is hypernomian. No one ever who walked on the planet, of the earth, planet earth had a higher view of the law, the Torah, uh, or, or took it more seriously than Jesus. Hypernomian. Third, his goal, his passion, Luke 4 tells us, is to come to rescue failures. 
He's come for the lonely. He's come for the fearful, the anxious, the isolated, those who feel like they're not enough and they're celestially disconnected and, and largely it's their fault. He's come for them and they get a sense of that. They get it. They feel it. They see him as a rescuer. Fourth, when he speaks, it's just not PowerPoint. It's a power that goes forth and has the capacity to actually change people's lives, their motivations, their identities, their wounds, their sense of being loved, their ability to be loved. He is creating. When he speaks, he is baraing, Genesis 1. And then lastly, he regularly humiliates himself to do his thing. No wonder regular humble people or humbled people, those who have been made to be humiliated by uh, oppressors, came to him and didn't seem to feel shame. He didn't look down on them. He didn't uh, swarm them with false pity. He was one of them, even though he wasn't, right? He was able to connect. When beat up people came to him, hung out with him, looked into his face, his eyes, his posture, his smile, they actually felt welcomed. They felt honored. Oh my goodness, if we could just capture that through the Holy Spirit as we're listening to the Sermon on the Mount, it really does pop it off the page. All right, those are the five things we're unpacking about Jesus. Very important. So with those five things in context, listen to Matthew 3, verse 1 to 17 again, and then we'll talk about the screenplay version. All right. Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All right, let's get to the interpretive, expanded Matthew narrative, the screenplay, I'm calling it. Something had caused John to look in Jesus's direction. He knew his cousin, but he couldn't know what his role was in all of this. But he knew somehow, just knew that this was the one he had been called to speak about. 
that he had waited for, and he somehow knew that his role was finishing up. The priest had no idea. It all went over their heads. And Jesus wanted to be baptized by John? Jesus was a study in contrast to the religious professionals. They were proud and arrogant, offensive. They stood over crowds. Jesus seemed to be comfortable humiliating himself and submitting to John's authority. But the more John thought about it, he felt more and more ill-prepared for this task. He understood a little what was happening, or at least he thought he did. He wondered if he did. Jesus was the one coming in the name of the Lord. The details were over his pay grade, but the next chapter is here. The world was about to be turned upside down, Judea was about to explode, and John knew that he was not worthy to stand before this Jesus, only to bow and kiss his hymn. Jesus would have none of it. He just stood silently, smiling at John, hands held out just like the rest. Clearly, he wanted John to do his thing. But John's mind was confused, and he stuttered an awkward objection. Oh, no, I I can't. I will not baptize you. What would that even mean? The rest of us are frightened to see the face of the coming wrathful God, but you're not. So why me? No, no, he paused. I need to be baptized by your baptism of spirit and fire. Jesus was deeply moved by his cousin's faith. He had not seen anything like it. It pleased him. It honored him, and he smiled. John Leave it like this for the time being. It must be done to fulfill the prophets. You can't see it right now, but all will be made clear. This is your final charge, my brother. Where do you want me to stand? There we go. Fun, right? Well, let's leave it like this for the time being. Uh, And the broad translation of the two Greek words, let now, uh, let it happen now. Back to the rendition. And so John baptized Jesus. For the crowd and the Pharisees, it appeared that John was just baptizing another guilt-ridden Jew. But after he did, something ridiculous and unheard of happened. All right, now we're going to get into some juicy stuff. Per uh, Bruner, uh, quote, I consider this incident Jesus' first miracle, the miracle of his humility. Man, I love that. The first thing that Jesus does for the human race is go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus's whole life will be like this. It is well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low at our level, identifying with us at every power, becoming as completely one with us in our humanity as he is believed to be completely one with God in eternity. Isn't that great? Close quote. My son-in-law has picked this up implicitly as he disciplines his young son. They use time out very effectively, by the way. I'm trying to get Jeff to write a book. Uh, He told me at least once, and I imagine he's done this a number of times, that uh, he actually did his son's time out for him. He took his place. So he sent his son to time out, and then he went and substituted for him. And this is a four-year-old, a five-year-old. You know, this is a young child. And the idea is to just show him in kid speak, bodily form, what Jesus did. And I absolutely love that. That's the humility of Jesus. didn't didn't need to do it. He shouldn't have done it from justice standpoint. And yet, what an amazing message. Well, when we listen to the Sermon on the Mount, let's keep that in mind. The people saw and heard a a rabbi 
who naturally and seamlessly identified with them in their plight. He was not holding things over them. He was not saying, this is what you need to do. He's in the midst. And they got that. They, they reacted to that. And this is so different than the other teachers, even the good ones. Jesus was comfortable humiliating himself. Jesus was comfortable humiliating himself over and over. I'm not. But good news, the spirit in my inner being is still God. It's God's DNA, not mine. So my goal is to get more and more in sync with the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of that would be I would be more and more willing to humiliate myself for the sake of others. People would feel more like I'm with them, right? That's a miracle. All right, back to the screenplay. There was a rumbling in the skies like thunder, but it wasn't that. The skies were clear and bright. Thinking more about it later, John would say it was as if the sky cracked open and a fluttering ball of power. Not a thing. It was alive. It, it kind of looked like a dove, but nope, it was personable somehow. Was this the spirit of God, he wondered to himself? It gently came down and set on Jesus. Not anyone else, only him. And then there was a voice from the open skies. Look, everyone, this man is my son. The voice emphasized this man. And it was clearly a slap in the face of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who claimed that they were the true sons of God through Abraham. The voice didn't seem to think so. But one thing was made clear in the field that there was one son of God, only one son of God, to be clear. The voice continued. He is the one that I love. I'm so pleased with him. Well, uh, here's here's some notes. If you you want to see another heavens opening up, go to Ezekiel 1.1. It's also by a river. Uh, Ezekiel 2.2, the coming of the Spirit. So there are some kind of backhanded references to Ezekiel 1 and 2. Matthew uses an interesting narrative device, a repetition in the Greek, idu, so think of exclamation mark. Look now, look. And they mark the, the main gifts that, that uh, is ushered in. First, the spirit upon humanity. You know, look, the heavens opened up and he saw the spirit of God coming down like a dove right on top of him, right? The first thing. And second, the favor of God, the spirit and the favor. Look, uh, Matthew says, a voice speaking from the heavens saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So look, John can lead horses to the water to drink, you know, so to speak, and he can even shame them and guilt them and cajole them into drinking. But he can't make them children of God and favored by God. He cannot give them the spirit of God or God's favor, right? Only God does that. And and John is just, again, in humility, watching this happen. Uh, Son of God, reference to Psalm 2, verse 7, and Isaiah 42, verse 1, where the God puts his spirit on his servant. Uh, again, backhanded references to the Old Testament. And this is why Jesus came, because no matter how sincere the repentances were, and I'm sure it was a spectrum, the effort or, or the efforts were, how costly they were, or how wet the people got. Right, I mean, or whether it was immersion or sprinkling that John the Baptist did, we don't know. But it doesn't matter how wet the people got; the people left the Jordan wetter and more exposed, and maybe felt good about confessing. Right, got that off their chest, but they would not have felt like they were being blessed by God's Spirit or favored by God yet. Only Jesus would have experienced that, not anybody else. 
John's baptism didn't do that, couldn't do that. Neither does our baptism, by the way. But Jesus will. Jesus' life and work and spirit will. That's, that's their job. So as we look ahead to the Sermon on the Mount, let's just say for laughs that even some of the people who listened to Jesus took all of his teachings to heart and did them all perfectly, right? A fairy tale. That's a unicorn. Nobody did. But let's say there was that one person who did it all and did it all well, right? Uh, Now, theoretically, uh, here's the question, would that endow them with the Spirit? No. Would they know the favor of God then? Well, no. That's still not enough. And they're not going to do it anyway, right? They don't, they can't, they won't. They have that critical inner voice and that midbrain, very powerful midbrain. They're going to mess up. They just will daily, hourly. Me too. So as Jesus speaks and unpacks the law in in the Sermon on the Mount in particular, it's clearer and clearer that all humanity is looking at an impossible task. Jesus sums it up. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in the Greek, it it means be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Nobody can do it. I mean, in humility, we need to fall on our face and say, but well, who can do it? I I can't do it. I've already messed up. That's the whole point. I need a rescuer. I need a savior. Exactly what Jesus is talking about. So the underlying point of the entire Sermon on the Mount is that you are further away from God's favor than you thought, all of us, everyone. And Jesus would say, that's why I came. That's why I needed to come. That's why I was glad to come. I will rescue the helplessly lost. Follow me. The favor of God will come from my efforts, not yours. The Spirit of God will come from my efforts, not yours. All you need is need. So our job is to need. Our job is to ask in our need. Uh, Coming and being baptized, coming and repenting, coming and confessing, all of that is good. It's not enough. It's good, and it's natural for people who feel sorry, right? Who feel like they have something they need to wash off of them, but it's, it's not enough. All right, back to the screenplay. In the days to come, John had to ponder this message. No one else who came to be baptized, no one else who came to watch and judge, and even himself had earned God's favor ever. Only this one man, Jesus. How do we know? God personally said it, that even though so many, almost all Israel had come and been baptized, none of them, none of them were acknowledged as sons or daughters in good standing. Only one, Jesus. God says so. So it really was a contrast of children. There's corporate Israel, the child of God. To their credit, they came out in revival. They came out in force. They came out corporately, all of them acknowledging their crimes against the heavens and humiliating themselves in repentance to be baptized by this firebrand, even though their religious leaders were holding them in contempt. There was no voice of approval. The heavens were silent. Their efforts had fallen short and were summarily rejected. But There was another, I feel like Star Wars now, there was another child of God who also came, identified with them, and was baptized. God only accepted one child as having earned favor. Only one in all of Israel, only only one man, one person, one human was acclaimed as being good with God, Jesus. This was the beginning of the coming of the Lord. More to come. All right. Well, let me just repeat the five things. What can we say about Jesus now? Uh, first, he is hypernomian. 
No one who walked on the planet Earth had a higher view of the law or took it more seriously than Jesus. He's the only one who kept the law. Two, he has come to rescue failures. Um, the disenfranchised, the isolated, the disconnected, the lonely, for those who feel like they are not enough and are celestially disconnected. He's a teacher of life principles, the greatest ever. When he speaks, power goes forth that actually changes people's lives and identities. And lastly, he regularly humiliates himself to do his thing. No wonder regular people came to him and they weren't shamed in his presence because he didn't look down at them. He didn't pity them falsely. He became one of them. His incarnation was thorough, right? Even though he wasn't one of them. When beat up people, when sinful people, when guilt-ridden, shamed people saw his face, they didn't feel shame. Saw his eyes, they didn't feel guilt. Saw his posture and felt his touch. They felt welcomed and honored. Where else would you go? Certainly not the temple. So then and today, this is the Jesus that we meet. This is the Jesus that we Christians met once, right, when we were saved. This is the spirit of Jesus who dwells in our inner being, and so we should be getting in touch with him more often. This is the Jesus we long to experience every day. When we go to church, this is what we want to experience, that kind of welcome, that kind of honoring, that kind of being loved as we are. This is the Jesus that the, the rejects of the world still long to see and need to meet. Well, is this the Jesus that you've been praying to, that you've been telling people about? Is it the Yoda Jesus that is filled with wisdom and principles, the Gandhi Jesus? Well, that Jesus can be helpful, smart stuff, wise stuff, but he can't rescue. Principles do not rescue. People do. Or have you been experiencing and telling people about the rescuer Jesus, right? He's the Jesus who teaches principles, but he is also the Jesus that saves the unsaved, that, that pursues the unrighteous. It's a complicated Jesus. All right. Next podcast, we will continue to unpack Matthew's Jesus, and we'll look at his temptation by Satan in the wilderness. And we'll see some of these five things once again in preparation for uh, imagining who Jesus really is at the Sermon on the Mount. We'll see you next time on the Gospel Rant. Please pass this on to others. Hopefully you're you're finding this interesting and provocative. You're hearing new things that you haven't heard before or in a long time. So what do you do? Send it to your email list. Why not? I mean, so, so yeah, just do it. Call your friends. Um, you can tell them you can find the rant wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, you may need to help your parents find it. I get that. Uh, give them a hand. If you don't, if you do Twitter, tweet it. If you do Facebook, post it. Help us get this complicated Jesus in front of Christians. It could make a difference. I believe that. Uh, Jesus has, that Jesus has made a big difference in my life and continues to. All right. In the meantime, take heart, child of God. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.